All right, if you're here this morning and you haven't been with us uh, regularly or this is your first time with us, we are walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. And so today we're in the middle of Mark chapter 10. If you'll go ahead and get your Bibles and turn there, uh, we're just making our way through, picking up where we left off uh, each week. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for four or five months now. So if you'll make your way to Mark chapter 10, we're about to read the words of God together. Okay, This will be the most important thing you hear all day long. Why? Because these are the words of the living God. And so I'd encourage you in the next few moments to prepare yourself to hear from God. To hear from God as we read His Word together. Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 32. And I invite you to read this with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and we praise You for Your Word, Lord Jesus. Our desire in the next few moments is to hear You speak to us. Holy Spirit, we call out. Holy Spirit, drive Your words into our souls. Lord, we ask, God, that You would not allow this time to fall into futility, and vanity, Lord, we desire to hear You speak to us. We ask, Lord, we, we ask, seek, and knock that You would come in power, that You would do Your work among us, God. We, we appeal to You and Your great love for us. We appeal to You, Lord, that You would feed us, Your people, Your sheep. God, be exalted. Lord Jesus, be exalted in this time. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would humble us today. We pray that You would freshly humble us today. Lord, help us know in a fresh way what it means to to humble ourselves before You and to lay our lives down in service of You, Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask for Your help to teach Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that only You would be glorified. Only You would be glorified, Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start our time out before we jump into Mark chapter 10. I want to start our time out with some reminders of God's, from God's Word about pride. Our passage is going to touch on pride all around today. So I'm going to give you some reminders as we get started. Here's the first one. God hates pride. God hates pride. The living God, the King of kings, the one with all authority, He hates, passionately disdains, He abhors pride. So I'll give you a few verses just to bathe us in this truth. Proverbs 8, 13 says... Pride and arrogance, I hate. 
Simple enough. Why does God hate pride? Proverbs 21.4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart are sin. God hates all sin, therefore God hates pride. And there are two passages in the New Testament, James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5, and they both remind us that God is against the proud. He opposes the proud. He resists them. On this planet, the living God, the one with all authority, opposes the proud on this planet, in this world, in this life. And God has promised to punish the proud in eternity. Last verse here. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. God hates pride. God resists pride while you're on this planet. And in eternity, God has promised to punish pride. Now this is bad news for us. Why? Because the sin of pride is pervasive. The sin of pride is pervasive. It sweeps all of humanity under its sway. This is bad news for us that God hates pride. Pride has been called the defining sin of humanity. Think about this. The first sin in the history of the world, in the garden, was the sin of pride rooted in unbelief towards God. This is the rebellion of humanity against its Creator. Here's a definition for pride. I'll say it twice so you can get this down. Pride is a pervasive desire for self-gratification with the sole aim of self-exaltation. Pride is a pervasive desire for self-gratification with a sole aim of self-exaltation. Pride is rebellion against God. And this rebellion has swept all of humanity under its sway. Every single descendant of Adam of Adam is dominated by pride. That includes you and that includes me. Okay? This sin touches us all. And here's the bad news that God hates pride. God hates pride. Today we're going to unpack a story about the 12 disciples of Jesus walking in pride, specifically two of them named James and John. Now where are we at in the Gospel of Mark? We're in the middle of these chapters 8 and 10 and that's been called several times over. It's been called the Great Discipleship Discourse because in this section Jesus has taken the worldviews of His apostles and He's flipping them over about, about a variety of topics over and over again. Listen to Danny Aiken of what he says about the Great Discipleship Discourse in Mark 8-10. through 10. He says, Mark 8-10 through 10 is the most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. Hello. The most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the entire New Testament. So, in Mark chapter 10, what's happening? These 12 apostles of Jesus, they are receiving their final stage of training before Jesus departs out of this world and these men represent Him and continue His mission on. And so these are the final things that Jesus is imparting to His apostles. Our story today is going to focus in on the sin of pride. And the lesson for us is clear, right? The lesson for us is clear. We must, as followers of Christ, we must make war on pride. We must make war on this sin if we are to rightly represent Jesus and continue His mission to the world. So listen up, disciples of Jesus in the room. God hates your pride. It's time to listen up. God hates your pride. But i got some good news for us today. That Jesus Christ in grace, in mercy, He's about to confront us in our pride. He desires to deliver us from this sin. He desires for us to be free from this dominating sin of pride. So may the Holy Spirit of God work this message into us. This is the living words of Jesus Christ. And may the Holy Spirit work it in. So let's begin our time with verses 32 through 34. And let's read it together. We're going to unpack this phrase by phrase. Verses 32 through 34 says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. First thing I want us to see, numero uno, is that Jesus Christ, He's not confused, He's not deceived, He's perfectly oriented of where He's at on this planet. Listen to John 8, 14. Jesus says, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You see that? 
Jesus knows the exact moment that he will lay his life down, and in vivid detail, this man describes his own death. I'll remind us all, he knew that he would die. Jesus was a student of the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures. Let's take that one step further. Jesus was the subject of the Old Testament itself. He knew Psalm 22. He knew Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. He knew those passages were about Him. Jesus knew that He must die. And even more than that, He prophesies in vivid detail about His own death. And even more than that, Jesus prophesied that after being dead for three days, that He would rise from the dead. This is the prophecy of Jesus. Listen to R.C. Sproul. He says, Jesus is so specific here that liberal critics of the Bible declare that these words must have been attributed to Jesus after His death. They are so allergic to anything supernatural and so opposed to the idea of prophecy that they prefer to assume that Mark committed fraud in writing his gospel than to choke down these words from Jesus that he knew he was going to die, he knew where he was going to die, he knew how he was going to die, and he knew three days later that he was coming from the ground. They can't stomach it. And so they, they say that Mark committed fraud in writing his gospel. These details are vivid. Notice in these verses that Jesus prophesies He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. Now that is an astonishing statement for the Jewish Messiah. Okay, Think about this for a minute. He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles means that He's going to be sent outside the covenant community of Israel. Jesus is going to be rejected by Israel's leaders and they're going to do what? They're going to send Jesus outside the camp. Outside the people of God and He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. Now the last place that you would ever expect to find the Jewish Messiah is turned over to the Gentiles. This man has come to rule the Gentiles, to rule all the nations. This is an astonishing statement, okay, that he's going to fall into the hands of the Gentiles. His punishment by the Romans will be violent and graphic. Notice what he says, Jesus will be mocked. He will be spit upon. Jesus will be flogged, which means pieces of flesh will be ripped off of His bones. And then Jesus will be murdered. He prophesies this Himself. But then Jesus tells us that this bloody scene is going to end with a triumphant resurrection from the dead. And He's coming out of the tomb. He's coming out of the tomb. He says, after three days, the Son of Man will rise. This is powerful. The Savior knows that He's going to lay His life down and He knows He's going to rip Himself out of the tomb. This is who He is. Okay? This is who He is. Now I want you to see this. Take note that Mark pictures Jesus in that first verse. He pictures Jesus there on a road and Jesus is out in front of the the disciples. And Jesus is by Himself. Okay? And that might not sound spectacular to you. Okay? And Mark's point in telling us that is not that Jesus... Look how fast of a walker Jesus is. He just walks the... Ahead of those disciples. That's not the point. Okay, We get something powerful in the, in the very next phrase that Jesus is walking ahead by Himself and all the, all the disciples are behind Him. Where is Jesus going? We know that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And what's happening at Jerusalem? And Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified at Jerusalem. And so we see this, this picture that Jesus is basically jogging towards the cross. He's jogging towards His death. He's moving out ahead of His disciples. He didn't drag His feet on the road to the cross. You see this. He's out ahead. Now, the four Gospels are really clear about this. They, they paint a vivid picture that Jesus goes to the cross like a soldier going into battle. He doesn't drag His feet. Listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, When the days drew near... For him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Do you see Jesus' determination? He's about to die, but he's going out ahead of the crowd. He's not slouching back. This man has counted the cost, and Jesus will stop, and nothing until he accomplishes his mission. Nothing can stop this man on his road to the cross. He's out ahead of the crowd. Jesus is like a fearless, victorious Soldier going into battle with the full confidence that he knows that he's coming out of the ground, he's coming out of the tomb. This is who he is on this road to the cross. Now this messed up the disciples that saw him so much. They saw this man with this determination, 
this purpose, this, this step out in front of the crowd, they saw him going to his death with this much confidence, and it messed them up. They couldn't get over it. It says that they were afraid and in awe all at the same time. They couldn't even describe how they felt. They're like, who is this man? This is who he is on the road to his cross. His determined death march to the cross could not be stopped. His determined death march to the cross could not be stopped. And I want us to see something beautiful here. Okay, As Jesus goes out ahead and basically jogging to his death, we see two things, at least two things. We see Jesus' love for the Father, and we see Jesus' love for us. And I want to unpack that for a second. As Jesus trots ahead to his death, Jesus Christ is determined to obey his Father's will because Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus always does what pleases the Father. Jesus only does what He sees His Father doing. Jesus loves the Father. So I want you to picture that you're there. Just imagine this. As Jesus is going to the cross, can you imagine God the Son and God the Father communing with one another? And I want you to try to imagine these verses of Scripture on the, word, on the lips of Jesus as He speaks them to the Father as He's going to His cross. He is determined to display His love for God. Here's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. See this on the Savior's list. When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 8. The Lord God has opened My ear, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Like a soldier going into battle, he's going to his cross. Jesus is determined to obey the Father because Jesus loves the Father. But Jesus is also determined to display His love for us. This, is what, this means something for you that He's trotting ahead to His death. So same imagination. Picture these words of the Savior. On, these words being on the Savior's lips as He goes towards His death. John 10, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down His own life for His sheep. That's us. Jesus was not forced to die for you. Jesus volunteered. There was nothing involuntary about His death. He chose to lay down His life for sinners. He must lay down His life for the sheep. So think about this. He's going ahead and He knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus was mocked. He was spit upon and He was flogged, not for His own sins, for our sins, for us. Jesus was rejected and Jesus was murdered for you. Jesus basically runs to His cross to save you. Do you see how willing? Do you see the love of Jesus, the resolve of Jesus? I'm about to save Him. I'm about to save Him. Nothing's going to stop me from my mission. Jesus was so willing to bear our curse in our place that He trots ahead of the others. This is the amazing love of God. The amazing love of God. A right understanding of this message of the cross is meant to humble us before God. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving towards God. Thank You, Lord God, for the grace, for the mercy that You've shown us in Jesus Christ. When we see this message of the cross light, rightly, it takes us low. We see ourselves as unworthy sinners saved by the grace of God. Didn't have a chance in the world, but the Savior saved us. This is what the gospel does. This is the proper response to the cross. But think about this. This is the exact opposite of how James and John respond to this message of the cross in our passage today. So let's continue on. Verses 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Worst prayer in the history of the world. 
worst prayer in the history of the world. This is about the exact opposite of everything that prayer is supposed to be about. These two are consumed with their own desires, their own wants. They, they're thinking of nothing about God's glory, nothing about the good of the nations, nothing about their neighbors. They're consumed with their own desires. I used to have a friend, and he calls sinful prayers like this. When, when sinful men calls holy God into the courtroom of, the, of their own carnality, and Jesus will have nothing of this, nothing of it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work out very well for them. Verse 36 and 37 say this, And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Simple enough, they knew what they wanted. Okay, the request, Jesus, we want you to do this for us. This is nothing more than wicked, sinful pride. Nothing more than pride. These two men, James and John, if you've ever read the Gospels, you know that these two men, they're part of the inner circle of Jesus. When Jesus, Jesus' closest group on the planet was an inner circle of three people. And when Jesus would sneak off, you would always read about Peter, James, and John. These two were already in the most intimate group with Jesus on this planet. They were very privileged in their relationship to Jesus. Okay, More than that, one step more. Matthew 19.28 says this. This is Jesus' promise to these men. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they're in the most privileged group on the planet with Jesus. They're in the inner, inner core. And these men have already been promised thrones in eternity with Jesus. Already. It's theirs. And what you see here is they're still not content. They're not content to be in the inner circle of three. They're not content with just any throne. They must have the throne above their brothers. And they reach for power. And they reach for prominence. And this wicked request... The throne to the right of Jesus, this would have meant the second in command in the kingdom of God. And the throne to the left would have been one down. It would have been third command in the kingdom of God. They wanted an eternal status above their brothers, above the other ten. They refused to be content with the promise that Jesus had already given them. Now I want to be fair to James and John. I don't want to be too hard on them. Okay, I want to be fair about something. They got one thing right. Okay? The last thing that Jesus had told these men was three days I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead for three days. And then three days later, I'm coming out of the tomb. Son of man must rise. And these men heard that and they rightly saw Jesus as the king. He was going to Jerusalem to restore the fallen throne of King David. That's right. But they wrongly concluded that this kingdom of God would be established immediately. Okay? They didn't see the delay. They didn't see the delay that Jesus had planned. So they saw this as their opportunity that the kingdom's coming. We're almost here and this is my chance to reach for power in the coming new world. Do you see this? They reached for honor for themselves above their brothers. Now, in this world, this self-promotion, this reaching above, this achievement, this desire to achieve and attain is completely normal in this world. Okay, Completely accepted. But this could not be more wrong in the kingdom of God. And we're about to see Jesus confront these brothers. They wanted to be greater than the other ten. Now, before we move on, surely you would never do this, right? Surely you would never make the request that you would be in a position of prominence and power above your brothers and sisters. And I just want to cut that off right there, that we need to be very careful, right? We're already like leaning in on the wrong side of that deal. We need to be very careful not to detach ourselves from this story by thinking that we're above James and John, that we would never do that, okay? Because if we just leaned in for a second and we were to humble ourselves for a moment, Surely there are numerous times in your life where, that you can think of even now. And may the Holy Spirit of God help you if you can. Surely there are numerous times in your life where you sought to outdo, where you sought to, 
outdo your brothers and sisters in Christ. Where you sought prominence. Where you sought to achieve something above someone else. So I want us to fight to see ourselves in this story. Fight to see yourselves in their place. They needed a lesson about discipleship, of what it meant to follow Jesus. So do we. If you don't see yourself as these two men, at least tempted in the same ways that they are, you'll miss this lesson from Jesus. Verses 38-40. through 40. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to Him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. So Jesus teaches us with these words that the pathway to glory in the kingdom of God is always the pathway to suffering. The same trail that He blazed, all of His followers must follow Him down the same trail. James and John wanted immediate glory as followers of Christ, but they are destined to suffer in the service of King Jesus. Jesus tells them that they must drink a cup and that they must enter into a baptism. Right? Okay, what do we, what do we, what do we have here? This cup is a reference in Scripture. It's, common, it's a common reference to divine judgment. God's judgment. A cup of judgment. Listen to Psalm 75 verse 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. This is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus Christ is destined to drink this cup from His Father. This is a terrible cup that Jesus must drink. You think about this. All the wrath of all the eternal ages of all of God's people is poured in that cup and Jesus slams it down to the dregs. This is a terrible cup and Jesus must drink it. Jesus must also enter into a baptism and this tells us that Jesus must be immersed in and even drowned in the waters of God's judgment. This is another reference to judgment. This Savior will be swept away in the storm of the wrath of God. This is Jesus' cup. This is Jesus' baptism of suffering. And we must partake of it. We must drink of it. James and John were destined to suffer, and they did both drink this cup of suffering. Consider this. Uh, James was the first apostle of Jesus to be martyred. You can read that in Acts chapter 12. What about John? What about the other brother of Zebedee? This man, read Revelation chapter 1, this man in his old age, he becomes an exile on the island of Patmos. He becomes exiled and a prisoner for Christ. He suffered on this planet. They both suffered on this planet. Jesus told them that they would drink the cup, and they drank the cup. Okay? It was destined that they must suffer. And I say to every one of us, before we even move forward, Jesus has destined as Christ followers that we suffer. There is a cup to drink. There is a baptism to be entered into. No way around this. You, The plan of Jesus for your life, one of the plans of Jesus for your life is that you would suffer. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This is just it. We must follow in the Savior's footsteps. There's no way around it. Romans 8 verse 17 reminds us that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you catch that? That suffering is an indispensable condition to glorification, to you being glorified in the presence of Jesus. There's no way around this. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's no side roads, there's no way around it. Now the warning for us is just like James and John, we are prone to think only about the glory, only about the riches, only about the rewards, and to forget about the cross, the tribulation, the suffering, and the persecution. But Jesus teaches us that every Christian must bear a cross. 
There's no first class tickets. There, there's no side roads. Every single one of us must bear a cross if we are to enter into His kingdom. We must drink of His cup. We must enter into His baptism. So these sons of Zebedee, James and John, Jesus on the throne in the kingdom, that's good theology. Good idea. That's good sound doctrine. Bypassing suffering on the way to this kingdom, bad theology, very bad doctrine. That disciples can sidestep suffering and go straight to the throne. In the kingdom of God, there are no crowns without crosses. Jesus blazed the trail and we must follow Him. So, how do you desire to spend your life on this planet? Let's just break this down for a second. Will you live on this earth in the constant pursuit of your own fame, of your own comfort, of your own security, of your own affluence? Do you find yourself in life constantly reaching for, to make a name for yourself or for your own glory? Or, if you are honest with yourself, are you willing to serve God, to suffer for Christ, to die, and to be forgotten? Are you willing to do that? Or are you out to make a name for yourself? Even an eternal name for yourself. So think about this. Is it even an option for you as a Christ follower to spend your life in kingdom service in a third world country? No blogs, no social media, no accolades, no nothing. That you're serving Jesus and that you're forgotten in this world. Is that even an option for you? Is it even an option for you to spend your life planting the gospel in dangerous, secluded even, unreached people groups on this planet? Is that even an option for you? Or are those tasks offensive to the comfortable life that you plan for yourself? You see that? Do you see how easy we can gravitate towards glory without suffering? We must follow Jesus in the path that He's blazed. Jesus is demanding in this text. He is demanding that we get low and that we humble ourselves before Him. That we see ourselves as we rightly are. Humble servants of Jesus. Verse 41-44 through And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So most likely what's happened is that there's... the two do their thing, James and John. The ten are sitting back and they are just burning. Like, I cannot believe they just asked him that. They're indignant that these men reach for power over them. And the fact that they're indignant, probably, not necessarily, but probably it reveals that they're consumed with pride too. That they can't stand the thought of their brother being placed in prominence above them. So what does Jesus do? He turns and He basically gives the same message to the ten that He just gave to the two. He told the two you must suffer and He tells the ten you got to serve. Both of these are expressions of humility. So He basically calls them all to do the same thing. Get low. You're trying to get high, but you need to get low. You need to humble yourself before God. So according to Jesus, worldly greatness, He, he tells us what it's like. It's like a pyramid. With the VIPs and the great ones at the top and everybody else down below them. And and the ones below them exist to meet their needs. This is worldly greatness according to Jesus. But then he flips it and he says, that pagan approach, is that's that's not going to work in my kingdom. And what he does is he flips the pyramid upside down. And Jesus tells us that greatness in his kingdom is like an inverted pyramid. That the great ones are the lowest ones and they are there to serve those above them to meet their needs. This is greatness according to Christ. Jesus uses two, he uses two words here. And, and maybe they're hard to choke down, but we just need to understand that He uses two words here to describe these lowly ones, these great ones in the kingdom. One is servant and one is slave. And Jesus says the ones that are great in the kingdom of God are like servants 
and they're like slaves. So think about this. A servant, if you want to be great, you must be a servant, and whoever will be first must be a slave. A servant is a person that exists for another. They They are entirely oriented towards another, not to themselves, but to another. And slaves takes it even lower. Okay, this is someone who forgoes all rights, all legal rights, and their entire existence is they're devoted to meet the needs of others. And Jesus says, that's what greatness is like in the kingdom of God. That's what greatness is like in the kingdom of God. And so, I know God's will for your life. You might be like, what are you talking about? God's will for your life For my life, for every single person that draws air in this world, God's will for you is that you become a servant and a slave to others. This is what Jesus has called us to. This is what Jesus has demanded of His followers. Now, I've heard teaching like this sometimes, and sometimes there's a little bit of tension in the room, and somebody will say, now what Jesus meant, now now what Jesus meant here, we need to understand this, He's not saying, He's not saying, that we shouldn't seek greatness, okay? And I just want to be really honest with you. I think that misses the point. I think that there's a sharp sword that the Holy Spirit intended to drop and that blunts the sword. Because the entire point of this passage is that there is a sinful, wrong way to seek greatness for yourself. Okay? We need to see this. This passage clearly shows us that it is wrong to reach for a place of prominence above your brother's. If you don't understand this, here's how you'll respond to this passage. You'll say, okay, Jesus said that great ones serve. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm about to outserve every Christian I know and be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Okay? And here's why that would be a miss for you to interpret this passage in that way. If the only reason that you serve others in your life on this planet is to get what you want in the end, self-exaltation, then you're still selfish. You're still oriented to yourself. Okay? And just, just because you, if you serve with selfish motives, then what are you in the end? You're not a humble servant. You're a selfish man or a woman of God. Do you see this? Okay? Do you see how sinful it would be for you to aspire to greatness for yourself? And then use service as a stepping stone for you to get there. Okay, some interpret this passage like that, but I want you to see this. And I was thinking through this as I studied. I was just praising the Lord for this. Don't see service as a stepping stone to get what you want. Alright? Don't see this greatness in the kingdom promise that Jesus has made for you to outdo all the other Christians and you to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. How should we see it? When you become a servant and a slave to others, when you become a servant and a slave to others, you are like Jesus. And Jesus is great. And this means that greatness, that service is not just a means to greatness. Service is an end in itself. It makes you like Jesus Christ. It's not that the the greatest in the kingdom will serve. It's that the great in the kingdom are servants. This is an end for you to attain to. To pour yourself out for others like Jesus. Jesus tells us that we exist to lift up our brothers. Listen to 1 John 3.16. He laid down His life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see the natural response to the gospel? He laid down His life for me and I'm going to lay down my life for my brothers. You see that? So we must kill arrogance. We must kill pride. We must kill elitism and a desire to achieve above your brothers. We're not competing against one another. Jeremiah 45.5 Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to be content to serve Jesus, to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. Seek great things for yourself. Seek them not. To the extent that you desire power and prominence above your brothers and sisters, you are in the flesh. You're in the flesh and you're forfeiting the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So, 
this word for us is that we are to quit aspiring to and seeking greatness for ourselves and orient ourselves toward others and seek to lift up our brothers. Seek greatness for your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Listen to J.C. Ryle here. He says, Blessed is the man that can sincerely rejoice when others are exalted, even if he is overlooked and passed by. Blessed is the man that can rejoice when others are exalted, even if he is overlooked and passed by. Now, why should we do this? Why should we respond to this call to humble ourselves, to become lowly servants in the kingdom of God? Why should we do that? First reason is that this is the third time that this has happened in the great discipleship discourse. That three times Jesus prophesies his death. And after all three times, there's a lesson about getting low, denying yourself, and serving others. That's the first reason we should. That he repeated it three times in his gospel so that we would hear it. And here's the second reason that we should take this pathway to suffering and not towards comfort. Listen closely to the next verse. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is awesome. This is awesome. These words are staggering, beautiful. Okay, And if you've been around for long enough, you know that these words sum up Mark's entire gospel. This is like the key that unlocks the whole gospel. This is the, the summary verse. That Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Why should we become lowly servants in the kingdom? Because Jesus Christ has become the ultimate example. The ultimate example of a servant. The Son of Man didn't come to serve. The Son of Man, the Daniel 7 all nations ruler, didn't come to be served. What? The all nations king came into his creation. The creator came a part of his creation and he didn't come to be served? What? The fact that he just came demands that all creation rolls out the red carpet, right? And they were all bowing down, proclaiming His majesty. That's what it demands. But He didn't come to be served. And that's awesome in and of itself. But He also didn't come to be neutral. So It's not like He came to do nothing. He takes it even further. That the King of glory has come to pour Himself out to serve His creation. Jesus Christ has made Himself a table waiter to sinful humanity. This is Staggering. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. This reverses all ideas of greatness. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to pour His life out. This reverses all ideas of greatness. Worldly great ones, they seek to exert raw power and control to sway the hearts of those they influence. But that can never change someone on the inside. That can never change their hearts. So what does Jesus do? He does the exact opposite of worldly rulers. Jesus Christ has willed to change the world through serving instead of through raw power and control. Do you see this? He becomes the ultimate example. And He serves even His enemies. He serves even His enemies. This is the amazing love of God that melts stone cold hearts. This is the amazing love of God that melts stone-cold hearts. This is how He flips our hearts on the inside as He pours Himself out for His sinful, needy creation. This is unthinkable mercy. This is why we should lay our lives down for the brothers. That the Son of Man, the Exalted One, He, He came to serve. And this is the one that we follow. But verse 45 is more than an example. It is an example, and we should serve because Jesus served. But, but Mark tells us that Jesus' service ended with a bloody death on the cross that Mark calls a ransom. And with those words, we go from ultimate example to glorious gospel. Glorious gospel that Jesus is going to make a payment. He's going to serve us all the way to an end, and there's going to be a payment. 
This verse is awesome. For starters, the word came, the Son of Man came, is strong evidence that Jesus existed before He was born. Jesus wasn't born to serve, He came to serve. Do you see that? This pre-existent Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom. That's a payment of deliverance. That's, that's how you purchase and free a slave. This pre-existent one comes to lay his life down as a ransom. There's an ancient Christian heresy known as the ransom theory that says that Jesus came and He paid the ransom to Satan. But this is blasphemy. The only thing that Satan received at the cross was an eternal beatdown from Jesus. Okay? The ransom was paid to God the Father alone for our redemption, for our deliverance. Then, let's consider this little word for in that verse. That's the preposition, the Greek preposition anti. And it means instead of or in the place of. Do you see this? Do you see this? One little word is like a bomb in that verse that Jesus comes to give His life as a ransom instead of the many. And what this teaches is that Jesus on His cross, what would have happened to the many happens to Jesus instead. And He pours out His life to the very end. The Son of Man came to take the place of the many. This is us. This is God's people. Do you see Him there in your place bearing your wrath? Self-substitution of God. You deserve the wrath of God because you've broken God's law hundreds of times. Thousands of times. And to solve this problem, what does God do? He provides a substitute, but not just any substitute. He does it Himself. The cross is the self-substitution of God. The living God comes down and takes our place. This is the grace of God. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. God has substituted Himself, himself for sinners. And Jesus has died as the atonement lamb in our place to pay our ransom. This is the good news. This is the good news that saves us. This is the good news that we announce to the nations. This is what turns Christianity into a gospel instead of another religion. You understand that? It stands by itself. God steps down and saves sinful man. Every other option puts sinful man on a stairway to try to merit the, the, the favor of this God. But Christianity is a gospel. It's good news to sinners that Jesus has come to pay the ransom. He came to serve us with an atoning death. The righteousness of God demanded that there be a bloody payment for our sins. And the love of God provided this payment in this atonement lamb that Jesus came and He paid this bloody payment for our sins. This is earth-shaking news about the glorious one, the Lord Jesus that's humbled Himself. Now, on the backside of the message of the cross, the message of the glory of Jesus, stoop down to save sinners. Do you see why pride is so wicked? Do you see why pride is so wicked? That He alone has entered into His own creation, humiliated Himself just in the fact that He was here. That He wrapped Himself in, sinful, in human flesh and became sin for us. And He earns this glorious reputation for Himself as the, the Holy One and the only Savior. And what does pride do? Pride takes that spotlight that's meant to be fixed on this Lord Jesus, this glorious Lamb and this risen King, and it takes that spotlight and it turns it right on us. Do you see how wicked pride is? Do you see how offensive that could be to God? Why does God hate pride? Because only Jesus is worthy of praise. Only Jesus is worthy of praise. This is why pride is a wicked sin. May the Holy Spirit use this gospel to press against us today. I hope you feel that. I hope you feel this glorious news about Jesus squeezing any inflated thoughts of yourself that you feel pushed against and you feel less important. This is what the gospel does to us. When we understand the message of the cross rightly, what are we? We're humble. We're low. We are full of praise towards this glorious God that saved us. This is what it's meant to do. The gospel 
makes us humble servants just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. So may the Holy Spirit use His Word and humble us today. And if anyone's here and you're not sure that you're a Christian, I want to speak with you for a quick moment. Our text today tells us that Jesus Christ came to serve humanity. Every other religion in the world reverses that order. But Jesus came to serve humanity. And you must receive His service. You will never be able to stand before God on the basis of your works because you're a sinner. Romans 3 tells us this, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. It will never happen because you've sinned. If you're honest, you've sinned hundreds and thousands of times. And our message to you today is that you must receive this service from Jesus. You must allow Jesus to serve you with His atoning death in your place. If you reject this service, you will die forever. This is the message of the, of the New Testament. But this is a glorious gospel that Jesus has come to serve and to save you. The Bible teaches that He became sin for us. That on the cross, that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. And the Bible teaches that the way that you receive this payment, this bloody payment for your sins, is that you put all of your trust in this slaughtered Lamb of God and this risen King. And the Word of God teaches that every person who puts their faith in Christ will be saved forever. And I'd encourage you today to let Jesus Christ serve you. Stop reversing the order. Stop trying to work your way into favor with God. Let Him serve you. He came to lay His life down for you. And I want to say to us as we close, I pray, I know that I am, that we are freshly confronted in our pride today. God hates pride and it has no place. It has no place in a follower of a one named the Son of Man who made Himself a table waiter to sinful humanity. It has no place in our life. And may the Lord Jesus drive it far from us. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, we love You. Jesus, we love You. We thank You, Lord, for Your instruction. Lord, we thank You that You could have, you could have left us to wander in the fog of what it meant to follow You and to know You and to walk with You, Lord Jesus. But You gave us instruction. And we just praise You for that, God. We confess to You, Lord, that we live in a world that's been hijacked by pride. And we don't get very many pushes against our pride, Lord, and, and very many exhortations to humility. And so, Holy Spirit, we just call out to You that, and we just ask, Lord, that You would drive this into us, that You would drive this into our hearts, that You would make us humble servants in Your house, Lord, humble servants in Your kingdom, Lord Jesus. God, I pray if there's any among us, Lord, that doesn't know You, God, I pray that You pierce their heart with this message. Of the, of the exalted one that came to serve humanity, came to serve his enemies. Lord, I pray that you'd open their eyes, that you'd open their hearts, Lord. God, I pray for this church. I pray that you'd make us a humble church. Let this be a distinguishing mark among us, Lord, that we are servants, that we are, that we are lowly ones, that we are other-oriented. God, we pray that you'd kill pride, that you would put to death elitism, arrogance among us, Lord, and desire to exalt ourselves. We want to fall under your word, Lord Jesus, and we pray full of confidence in you, Lord. We thank you for your power to conquer sin. God, we pray that you make us a humble people. In your name we pray. Amen.